Good morning, beloved. Uh, to continue in our study of Acts, it's been quite a journey, has it not? Oh, just been loving it. You should have not gone so fast. Seriously. Uh, chapter 27, it's where we <clears throat> left off. <clears throat> Let me pray and we'll, we'll look at this together. Father, again, we thank you. We thank you. We thank you for your abounding, abundant grace shown to us through your son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Thank you for sending him to die for our sins, to raise for our salvation, for which we share in this morning. Um, help us, by the presence and power of your spirit, to see uh, what we ought to see here in this text before us, this, this grand, wonderful, beautiful narrative of the Apostle Paul, in Christ's name, amen. Chapter 27, I'm just going to read the first 12 verses and we'll work our way through it, through the entire chapter. When it was decided that we should sail for Italy, they delivered Paul and some other prisoners to a centurion of the Augustan cohort named Julius. And embarking in a ship of the Andromidium, which was about to sail to the port along the coast of Asia, we put to sea, accompanied by Aristarchus, a Macedonian from Thessalonica. The next day, we put in at Sidon. And Julius treated Paul kindly and gave him leave to go to his friends and to be cared for. And putting out to sea from there, we sailed under the lee of Cyprus because the winds were against us. And when we had sailed across the open sea along the coast of Cilicia and Pamphylia, we came to Myra in Lycia. There the centurion found a ship of Alexandria sailing for Italy and put us on board. We sailed slowly for a number of days and arrived with difficulty off Nidus. And as the wind did not allow us to go farther, we sailed under the lee of Crete off, off of Salome. Coasting along, coasting along it with difficulty, we came to a place called Fair Havens, near which was the city of Lycia. Since much time had passed and the voyage was now dangerous because even the feast was already over, Paul advised them, saying, Sirs, I perceive that the voyage will be with injury and much loss, not only of the cargo and the ship, but also of our lives. But the centurion paid no attention to the pilot and to the, I'm sorry, but the centurion paid more attention to the pilot and to the owner of the ship than to what Paul said. And because the harbor was not suitable to spend the winter in, the majority decided to put out to sea from there on the chance that somehow they could reach Phoenix, a harbor of Crete, facing both southwest and northwest, and then spend the winter there. Uh, if you know the story, you know this is a very thrilling story. This is one of those text that would make a great, you know, movie of the week, um, full of th um, thrilling uh, adventure. Uh, many modern scholars, as a matter of fact, um, who've studied this passage in, in light of ancient mariners um, in sea voyages say that Acts 27 um, contains a, a masterful presentation of what took place in the tempests on the Mediterranean um, back in this day, in the ancient world of shipping. Um, we left last time uh, with Paul's hearing before Festus and uh, King Agrippa. 
um, where in verse 1 now, we read this, these words. And when it was decided that we should sail for Italy, they delivered Paul and some other prisoners to a centurion. If you notice the we there, it was decided that, with, with, that we, is, it occurs 16 times in uh, this chapter. That which tells us that what? Luke is there with them again. Luke is on the ship, uh, and he, that, the, that's what provides this very detailed account. It's Luke, the author of Acts, is back with Paul. Um, and he was with Paul up until chapter 21, verse 18. Um, and when the imprisonment of Paul started, um, he was most likely staying in Caesarea, that is Luke, probably close by. But whatever the case, he, he joins him again. So he was uh, he's with Paul, serving as his physician. Luke was a doctor. And here Aristarchus, who likely served as Paul's personal assistant, they're both with him. This, quite simply, is the blessing of faithful men. Faithful men who stood by and traveled alongside the Apostle Paul. Uh, it, it was, it's no less hard today to find faithful men as it was in this day. These are faithful men. Um, so Paul's trip to Rome was in the company of two very dear Christian brothers. Um, it was incredibly uncommon for prisoners en route to Rome to be allowed to have companions with them. Um, but historians tell us there's one or two reasons that perhaps, there's two possible reasons that perhaps they were allowed to travel um, with Paul. Um, one would be that they would go as slaves of Paul, being a Roman citizen. That they could have served as his slaves, his servants. Or another reason is that, that Festus, uh, believing uh, Paul to be innocent, uh, wants to protect his reputation with Rome and provides Paul this courteous gesture so that he'll give a, a good report, Paul that is, will give a good report of Festus when he gets to Rome. Either way, this is a long, monotonous journey. It will take weeks, it will take months um, of these faithful brothers who stand alongside the Apostle Paul. Um, and we know this is no pleasure cruise, amen? They know this going in. But here again is a sign of a, a true godly leader. Any true godly leader has people following him. And amidst the people following him, um, there's a pretty good percent, per, percentage of people who, who love him. And then, of course, also on board are, are a number of prisoners, which we will, we will see. So in verse 2, embarking in a ship of the Andromidium, which was about to sail to the ports along the coast of Asia, we put to sea, accompanied by Aristarchus, Macedonian for Thessalonica. And the next day we put in at Sidon, and Julius treated Paul kindly and gave him leave to go to his friends and be cared for. Verse 3, the next day we put in at Sidon, and Julius treated Paul kindly. I'm sorry, verse 4, putting out to sea from there, we sailed under the lee of Cyprus because the winds were against us. Now the ship that they initially sail on, is a, is a small coastal ship. It wasn't made for the open sea, so these are a, a vessel that would hug the coast, 
would hug the protection of the coast. And uh, if, if it was put out to sea, it could easily capsize. And that's why we see the change of vessels in verse 6, where they're going to board an Alexandrian ship, which was a, a, uh, an ocean liner, a grain, a, a grain ship, um, about 140 feet long, 36 feet wide. And verse 37 informs us that there were 276 passengers um, on board. So you'd have cargo, prisoners, and soldiers, um, all led by Julius. Now, before they get there, they're on this small vessel, and you don't have to be a sailor um, to know that if you're trying to go west and the wind is blowing from the west, um, you have a problem. Fair to say? And that's exactly what's going on, especially with a single-mast vessel. So they start off on a safe, coastal-hugging craft with the winds against them. And in verse 5, when we had sailed across the open sea along the coast of Cilicia and Pamphylia, we came to Myra in Lycia. There the centurion found a ship of Alexandria sailing from Italy and put us on board. We sailed slowly for a number of days and arrived with difficulty off Nidus. And as the wind did not allow us to go farther, we sailed under the lee of Crete off Salome, uh, Sol- uh, coasting along it with difficulty. We came to a place called Fair Havens, near which was the city of Lycia. So now they're aboard this large vessel. It's from North Africa. As I said, it's a wheat-bearing ship heading towards Imperial Rome. Prisoners are now placed on the ship. They head out of Myra um, along the part. If you look on the map in your Bible, you see this peninsula that they go around um, that that juts them just out to sea a bit. And then they're hit by this prevailing wind. So they've already faced difficulty for a number of days. Um, The pilot sails southwest to go below Crete, And finally, they arrive at this little port called Fairhavens. In verse 9, since much time had passed, and the voyage was now dangerous, because even the the fast was already over, Paul advised them, saying, Sirs, I perceive that the voyage will be with injury and much loss, not only of the cargo and the ship, but also of our lives. Paul is giving a warning to stay in fair havens, quite simply, over winter. Perhaps to go ashore, perhaps to stay on board. Whatever the case, let's stay here. Any attempt to move from fair havens, he says, um, is going to be strewn with problems. And perhaps even potential loss of life, certainly the loss of the ship, right? So here now, the, the centurion is faced with a decision whether to winter there in Fair Havens or to press on another probably 40 or 50 miles to um, the port of Phoenix. You see, winter was no time to sail the Mediterranean. Far too dangerous. From the middle of October, ships stopped sailing the Mediterranean until February. And in 2 Timothy 4, do you remember that, where Paul writes Timothy And he asked Timothy to come to Rome to visit him before what? Before winter. Bring his cloak and parchments for this very reason. No one sailed the med during winter. Waters were too treacherous. 
Verse 9, the voyage was now dangerous because even the fast was already over. There Luke is informing us that the fast or the day of atonement was over, which was mid-October. Okay, now when Paul gives them warning, um, he's not speaking from a position of divine revelation. Right, he'll be given that later in the account, the account, but not here. So this is not a result of, you know, God told me this and God told me to tell you this. This is Paul, the experienced seafarer. He's a salty dog, amen? He's been on three missionary journeys. He has been around. So he speaks from wisdom. Paul is simply weighing the evidence, beloved, right? He's discerning the circumstances, and he concludes it's too risky. That's all this is. And don't forget 2 Corinthians 11. Paul had already been in three shipwrecks. This will be number four. (laughs) He knows what he's talking about. Risk is part of life, amen? We all engage in risk all the time. We weigh the evidence. We look at the circumstances. That's what Paul's doing. In his assessment, quite simply, it's too risky, guys. But his word is not taken. A lot of times, this is what we're to do as Christians. We pray, we ask for wisdom, we pray for discernment, and we weigh the evidence. But, verse 11, the centurion paid more attention to the pilot and to the owner of the ship than to what Paul said. And because the harbor was not suitable to spend the winter in, the majority decided to put, the, to put out to sea from there on the chance that somehow they could reach Phoenix, a harbor of Crete, facing both southwest and northwest, and spend the winter there. Fair Havens was apparently a boring place. And if you're a sailor, you do not want to be locked down in a boring place. James Boyce comments on this, on his commentary in Acts, and he says, quote, Fair Havens was not a fair place. It must have been named by the Chamber of Commerce to try to get people to visit it, which they normally tried to avoid doing. They must have said, anywhere but Fair Havens. There's nothing to do here at all. If we get stuck in Fair Havens, it's going to be a long, hard winter. They knew that there was a nicer port further alongside the coast, a place called Phoenix. Salty sailors aren't going to listen to a preacher. They don't listen to Paul. So when a favorable south wind begins to blow, they they decide to take a chance. They go for it. So the voyage thus far is only an indication of what's ahead. So this gentle breeze turns into this massive Mediterranean storm. Verse 14, where it says tempestuous wind, is a word from where we get the English word typhoon. Typhoon. Verse 13, now when the south wind blew gently, supposing that they had obtained their purpose... They weighed anchor and sailed along Crete, close to the shore. But soon a tempestuous wind called the Northeaster struck down from the land. And when the ship was caught and could not face the wind, we gave way to it and were driven along, running under the lee of the small island called Cauda. We managed with difficulty to secure the ship's boat. After hoisting it up, they used supports to undergird the ship Then, fearing that they would run aground, 
on Certus, they lowered the gear and thus were driven along. So now they're driven 20 plus miles south. Look, you can see that on the map also. Back of your Bible. So this typhoon-like northeaster storm, the, the perfect storm, if you will. Did you ever see that, the perfect storms? That was awesome. That is what's driving them. The storm is driving them. So with all the stress now of the storm, the, the hull begins to splinter. And it's going to totally to break apart unless something is done. So there were cables that they would wrap under the holes. And when stress came, they would wrench on the cables. Rope. It's kind of like wrapping the ship like, like a burrito. You, you would tie it up and you would wrench on these in, in order to undergird um, the ship and keep it from breaking apart. So it says they lowered the gear. I, I think this means that they dropped uh, mainsail. Verse 18, since we were violently storm-tossed, they began the next day to jettison the cargo. Okay, so it's, they're being threatened that it's going to break apart. They wrap cables around it. They wrench on these things. Um, no relief. So they start jettisoning things, and on the third day, they threw the ship's tackle overboard with their own hands, when neither sun nor stars appeared for many days, and no small tempest lay on us, all hope of our being saved was at last abandoned. So they jettisoned the cargo. This is a grain ship. This is big money. They jettison the cargo. They keep some of it here for ballast, for sure. Some for their own food, as we'll see. And then the third day, we cast out our own, on our, with our own hand, the baggage of the ship. This increased desperation here, yeah? Verses 18 and 19, only three days from Fair Havens. They can't see the stars, so they can't navigate. No GPS. Unable to navigate. They have no idea where they are. No idea which direction they're going. Tossed, turned. And there comes a point now where they abandon all hope of life. These are experienced sailors. Captain, sailors, all hope is abandoned. They're drifting. They're being tossed. And here again, we, we, we witness the strange dark providence of God. Paul just spent two years in prison. God promised him he would go to Rome. He's on his way to Rome. And just when you think like there's a little light, there's a little bit of light. Here I am. Here I'm going. According to the word of God, there's another surprise of providence. Okay, why didn't God intervene? Now, it would be understandable if this were Jonah. Right? That God would send a storm to prevent him from going any further because he was going in the opposite direction that God commanded him to go. Paul is going in the, direct, the, the, the exact direction for which God told him he would go. 
He's walking in the pathway of obedience, and still he encounters here the dark providence of God. You know, our studies of Paul over the past few weeks, have you noticed how they've dovetailed together with Joseph? Has anyone noticed that? Thank you. And as I told the guys on Thursday, I'll be just honest with you. No preacher likes to preach on suffering. Like a series on suffering, it's almost as though you can expect to suffer. And I've been in both these accounts going, man, I don't know if I like this. <laughs> but bottom line, these are lessons that, that, that teach us that we mustn't be surprised even when we're doing the right thing. Walking in obedience to the Lord, there's no need to think that trials or tribulations won't come and litter your path. So from the moment they boarded the ship to, to the moment the, the ship breaks apart off the island of Malta, there's no miracle, there's no divine intervention there, you know, of the miraculous kind. There's no voice of their master in the midst of the storm saying what? Peace be still. None of that. And just as easily as Jesus could calm waves and storms, he can whip one up for his greater purpose. And he will do that whenever it pleases him. He'll calm a storm when it pleases him and it glorifies him and he'll whip one up when it glorifies him. Now, beyond the providential value of the text and all that we see going on providentially, as dark as it may appear, um, a, a faithful man emerges. Paul. It's said that the true metal of a man comes forth in the fires of testing. You can tell what a man is in the midst of crisis because the crisis will prove what he is. Verse 21, since they had been without food for a long time, Paul stood up among them and said, men, you should have listened to me and not have set sail from Crete and incurred this injury and loss. What are we told we're not supposed to do? I told you so. You know, the one-upmanship thing. Paul says, you should have listened to me. I told you so. <laughs> that's because sometimes we choose to listen to the majority because the majority always seems to be the expert and refuse to wait even though wisdom tells us otherwise you see this with people who rush into marriage I saw red flags Shouldn't this is three years later I saw red flags, I saw red flags. Well, you were advised about those red flags back then. Right? They were ignored, they were refused, and I told you so. I spoke with a woman once, not too long ago, in that situation, 10 years after. She said, I remember being at a, this retreat thing for couples. And I had my, my arm in his. And we were 
engaged to be married. And it was almost like the Holy Spirit grabbed me by the neck and said, do not marry him. And the more I felt that the Lord was telling me not to, I gripped his arm even harder. And now everything's an absolute mess. What appeared to be a man who was a believer is not a believer. Now, we may not face um, literal storms like Paul, but we do face um, ferocious emotional and spiritual storms. All agree? And they sweep in from nowhere sometimes. It's the, the medical report, you know, that, you know, it's cancer. Or it's the, the call at 3 a.m., which if it's not the wrong number, it's not a good report. Yet now, verse 22, I urge you to take heart, for there will be no loss of life among you, but only of the ship. For this very night, now here it is, there stood before me an angel of the God to whom I belong and whom I worship. And he said, do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand before Caesar, and behold, God has granted you all those who sail with you. So take heart, men, for I have faith in God that it will be exactly as I have been told, but we must run aground on some island. An island at this point that is nowhere in sight. So it's been one thing after another. Paul's life seems to constantly hang in the balance, right? I mean, you've been here for the last year. But yet, in the midst of it all, we see a man calm, courageous, and, and confident. This is Paul. He always and ever is. He, he is a leader. I read a book on leadership a few years ago. You remember that about 10 years ago, Mark? Book on leadership based basically on this chapter. Most of it. And you know, a leader is not somebody who merely holds a title. A leader is not, a spiritual leader is not someone who, who simply goes to school. Paul starts out as a prisoner, basically. A lowly inmate. And he ends up commanding the whole ship, the entire situation. Verse 24, Paul says, don't be afraid. Okay, this time, an angelic visitation. This time, a voice. This time, I heard these wonderful words. And how many times does scripture come to God's servants and say, do not be what? Afraid. Because we're prone to fear. So God comes to Paul in this very special circumstance. And today, friends, you and I aren't to expect angels to appear. Okay? We're not to expect this kind of vision because we have something greater. Peter says it's something greater, and it's called what? Scripture. It's the Word of God to encourage us, to, strength, to strengthen us, to... To, to grant us the endurance that we need by the presence and the power of the Holy Spirit. So he says, what I've told you before is going to happen. This angel says to Paul, it's going to happen. God's going to keep his word. You will go to Rome. Don't be afraid. You must stand before Caesar. 
And God has granted you also all those who are with you. Those are wonderful, comforting words. You know, everybody here can give an example or a circumstance where we've been afraid. Amen? Whether it has to do with your children, your job, God's daily provision, or when you do hear those words, you know, it's cancer, or so-and-so is dead. So we have to remember, not unlike Paul, that uh, God's promises will never leave or forsake us. God is faithful. Because we belong to him. We belong to God in Christ. And your days are numbered anyway before the foundation of the earth. Right? There's an appointed day. There's an appointed time. We will die on schedule. Everybody dies on schedule. So knowing our days, he's given us a certain amount of work to do. Paul uses it to the fullest. You know, I quoted James Boyce earlier. When he wrote his commentary on Acts and this particular situation, he died of cancer two years later. He went to whom he belonged. Verse 23, an angel of God to whom I belong and whom I worship, he said, do not be afraid. The God of all circumstances, Paul knew he could trust in the midst of all the details of his life. So, verse 25, he says, take heart, men, for I have faith in God that it will be exactly as I have been told. But we must run aground on some island because it's according to the plan. <laughs> Good news, bad news. <laughs> now compare Paul who is out now. He's out. He's up on deck. He's ministering amidst the storm. Right? He's faithful. Compared to Jonah, where was he during the storm? He's down below sleeping. One running from God. One within the will of God, the commanded will of God. They're both in the sovereign will of God, but they're not both operating in the, in the commanded will of God. Pulls up on deck, emerging as the leader he is, Jonah will be brought up on deck and what? Tossed overboard. There's a lot of Jonahs in the Christian church today. You think of Paul. You know how you've heard this saying that that uh, some Christians are so heavenly minded they're no of no earthly use. You heard that? That thinking gets it backwards. That's nonsense. Amen. That is nonsense. It's heavenly minded people that are of the most earthly use because earthly minded Christians are rarely of any use when they get hit by storms like this. So verse 27, when the 14th night had come, you imagine this, man. 14 days and nights in this? You ever been in a storm at sea? I've been at storms at sea. 40-foot swells, um, 
I have photos of it. Like, it's amazing. But that was on a 350-foot vessel <laughs> made of steel, <laughs> right? 14 days of being driven across the Adriatic Sea. About midnight, the sailors suspected that they were nearing land, so they took a sounding and found 20 fathoms. A little farther, <clears throat> they took a sounding again and found 15 fathoms, and fearing that we might run on the rocks, they let down four anchors from the stern and prayed for day to come. So the water is getting more shallow, informing them that they're drawing near to land. That's pretty obvious. They probably could hear the crashing of the waves on the rocks amidst the storm. So in order to protect themselves from crashing, they dropped four anchors in the aft to slow the progress of the ship being driven into the rocks. And as some of them are dropping anchors in the aft... There are other prisoners on the bow pretending to do the same thing, trying to escape in order to get away. Verse 30, and as sailors were seeking to escape from the ship, had lowered the ship's boat into the sea under pretense of laying out anchors from the bow. Paul said to the centurion and the soldiers, unless these men stay in the ship, you cannot be saved. Then the soldiers cut away the ropes of the ship's boat and let it go. Cannot be saved. 276 will be saved physically. You know, the world has no awareness of how much it owes the presence of God in God's people has no idea. All of these men were spared because of Paul. God's representative. God was willing to spare Sodom and Gomorrah if there were what? Ten righteous. But there were none. There were not ten. America, this country, because of its evil its materialism, its blasphemy, its determination to eliminate any trace of God from national life, God is sparing her because of his remnant. I think it's pretty obvious. Because of his people, because of his true church. As I said before, there is no separation of church and state with God. Maybe in politics... But he's the sovereign ruler over the church and the state. Is he or is he not? He is. You better believe he is. And then verse 33, as day was about to dawn, Paul urged them all to take some food, saying, today is the 14th day that you have continued in suspense and without food having taken nothing. Therefore, I urge you to take some food, for it will give you strength, for not a hair is to perish from the head of any of you. And when he had said these things, he took bread and giving thanks to God in the presence of all, he broke it and began to eat. And then they all were encouraged. Notice that. They were all encouraged. And they ate some food themselves. 
We were in all, writes Luke, 276 persons in the ship. 14 days they have not eaten. Why is that? Thank you. It's not because they were on some fast. You ever been seasick? Cody, you ever been seasick? You go out to sea all the time. You been seasick? I've seen men severely seasick. I was out on those rough ways. I was young. I, I couldn't handle it. Now, I don't think I could go out on a boat outside of the bay without getting sick, probably. But I've seen guys so sick they can't eat and they don't eat for days. They haven't eaten for 14 days. You got the sea washing over and just contaminating everything. You know, you probably have damp, nasty food. And he says, eat. Tomorrow's going to be a trying day. You get this? Tomorrow's going to be a trying day. You're going to need your strength. And do you notice the practical leadership here? You see this is practical? You know, he's not saying, you know, there's going to be, you know, 40 days to a better you, 40 days to a better Christian you, 40 days to this and 40 days to that, and we're going to go through this study, and we're going to teach you about this. And No, eat some food and get some sleep. That's a lot of great wisdom right there. Amen? Not terribly spiritual, but it really is. Do the practical things. Eat, sleep, okay, go to work, do what you're called to do. Simple. He thanks God, he eats, and you know what? He's leading as an example. And basically they say, look, if this guy can do it, we can do it. That's what leadership is. One dedicated believer, one dedicated believer in the Lord Jesus Christ can, ta- can change the atmosphere of an entire situation. Just one, including at your work. You don't have to stand on a soapbox with your Bible open preaching, right? People will notice. Verse 39. Now when it was day, they did not recognize the land, but they noticed a bay with a beach on which they planned, if possible, to run the ship ashore. So they cast off the anchors and left them in the sea, at the same time loosening the ropes that tied the rudders, then hoisting the the foresail to the wind they made for the beach, but striking a reef... They ran the vessel aground. The bow struck and remained immovable, and the stern was being broken up by the surf. This is a massive storm. The soldier's plan was to kill the prisoners, lest any should swim away and escape, but the centurion, wishing to save Paul, kept them from carrying out their plan. He ordered those who could swim to jump overboard first and make for the land, and the rest on planks or on pieces of the ship. And so it was that all were brought safely to land. Now, if, if prisoners escaped under, under the responsibility of Roman soldiers, sometimes the Roman soldiers could be executed. So their solution to the dilemma was, you know, let's kill the prisoners. Let's put them to death. But because Paul had made such an impression, no doubt, on this centurion, uh, wanting to save Paul's life, he refused any of the soldiers, he refused that they be allowed to to put these prisoners to death. 
So again, the presence of God's messenger saves lives. You know, even the keeper of the prison with Joseph, the keeper of the prison, as we'll see today, and if you don't know who he is, you find out who he is, was blessed because of Joseph and God's steadfast love for him. That's why he was blessed. So it's a very familiar principle that runs throughout the scriptures. The world does not know how fortunate it is to have God's presence with them in and through his people. We, we need to realize this. The people in the ship, they had no idea how fortunate they were to have the apostle there. So the overarching principle to close, which we see in the Joseph account and that we see in the Paul account is that sometimes storms come for people around us, even unbelievers, to look past us and to see Christ. Sometimes storms come into the life of God's people so that the people around us, believer or not, see past us and see the sovereign one who's in charge of the storm. Amen. You may cringe with that, as I have kind of been doing. It's no less true. Amen. Thank you, Lord, for this time. Thank you for your word. We thank you for the narrative accounts of the life of Paul, the life of Joseph, and how this uh, truth resonates throughout all of scripture, ultimately recognized in and through your son, Jesus Christ. Lord, bless your people this day. Bring your people, Lord, to fill this place, to hear your word today to be changed by it and edified in it. In Christ's name, amen.